Hello everyone and welcome to the ninth episode of the world of Percy Jackson. Now in this episode, we are going to read chapters 17 through 18. Now in the last chapters, what had happened was Percy is on this quest to retrieve Zeus's lightning bolt and he takes Grover and Annabeth with him and yeah, they break down a bus in New Jersey they go against many monsters including a old lady with her pet chihuahua and yeah now we read chapter 17 we shop for waterbeds it was annabeth's idea she loaded us into the back of a vegas taxi as if we actually had money and told the driver los angeles please the cabbie chewed his cigar and sized us up that's 300 miles for that you gotta pay up front you accept casino deb- debit cards? Annabeth asked. He shrugged. Some of them. Same as credit cards. Cra- cards. I gotta swipe swipe them through first. Annabeth handed him her green lotus cash card. He looked at it skeptically. Swipe it, Annabeth invited. He did. His meter machine started rattling. The lights flashed. Finally, an infinity symbol came up te- next to the dollar sign. The cigar fell out of the driver's mouth. He looked back at us, his eyes wide. Where to in Los Angeles, uh, your highness? The Santa Monica Pier. Annabeth sat up a little straighter. I could tell she liked the your highness thing. Get us there fast. And you can keep the change. Maybe she shouldn't have told him that. The cab speedometer never dipped below 95 the whole way through the Mojave de- desert, desert. On the road, we had plenty of time to talk. I told Annabeth and Grover about my latest dream, but the details got sketchier the more I tried to remember them. The Lotus Casino seemed to have short-circuited my memory. I couldn't recall what the invisible servant's voice had sounded like, though I was sure it was somebody I knew. The servant had called the monster in the pit something other than my lord, some special name or title. The silent one? Annabeth suggested. The rich one? Both of those are nicknames for Hades. Maybe, I said, though neither sounded quite right. That throne room sounds like Hades, Grover said. That's the way it's usually described. I shook my head. Something's wrong. The throne room wasn't the main part of the dream. And that voice from the pit? I don't know. It just didn't feel like a god's voice. Ambit's eyes widened. What? I asked. Oh, nothing. I was just... No, it has to be Hades. Maybe he sent this, this thief, this invisible person, to get the Master Bowl, and something went wrong. Like what? I, I don't know, she said. But if he stole Zeus's symbol of power from Olympus, and the gods were hunting him, I mean, a lot of things could go wrong. So this thief had to hide the bolt, or he lost it somehow. Anyway, he failed to bring it to Hades. That's what the voice said in your dream, right? The guy failed. That would explain what the Furies were searching for when they came after us on the bus. Maybe they thought we had retrieved the bolt. I wasn't sure what was wrong with her. She looked pale. But if I had already retrieved the bolt, I said, why would I be traveling to the underworld? To threaten Hades, Grover suggested. To bribe or blackmail him into getting your mom back. I whistled. You have evil thoughts for a goat. Why, thank you. But the thing in the pit said it was waiting for two items. I said, if the Master Bolt is one, what's the other? 
Grover shook his head, clearly mystified. Annabeth was looking at me as if she knew my next question and was silently willing me not to ask it. You have an idea of what might be what might be in that pit, don't you? I asked her. I mean, what if it isn't Hades? Percy, let's not talk about that. Because if it isn't Hades, no, it has to be Hades. Wasteland rolled by. We passed a sign that said California State Line 12 miles. I got the feeling I was missing one simple critical piece of information. It was like when I stared at a common word I should know, but I couldn't make sense of it because one or two letters were floating around. The more I thought about my quest, the more I was sure that confronting Hades wasn't the real answer. There was something else going on, something even more dangerous. The problem was, we were hurtling toward the underworld at 95 miles per an hour, betting that Hades had that master bolt. If we got there and found out we were wrong, we wouldn't have time to correct ourselves. The solstice deadline would pass and war would begin. The answer is in the underworld, Annabeth assured me. You saw spirits of the dead, Percy. There's only one place that could be. We're doing the right thing. She tried to boost our morale by suggesting clever strategies for getting into the land of the dead. But my heart wasn't in it. There were just too many unknown factors. It was like cramming for a test without knowing the subject. And believe me, I'd done that m enough times. The cab sped west. Every gust of wind through Death Valley sounded like a spirit of the dead. Every time the brakes hissed on the 18-wheeler, it reminded me of Echidna's reptilian voice. At sunset, the taxi dropped us at the beach in Santa Monica. It looked exactly the way LA beaches do in the movies, only it smelled worse. There were carnival rides lining the pier, palm trees lining the sidewalks, homeless guys sleeping in the sand dunes, and surfer dudes sleeping in the sand dunes, and surfer dudes waiting for the perfect wave. Grover, Annabeth, and I walked down to the edge of the surf. What now? Annabeth asked. The Pacific was turning gold in the setting sun. I thought about how long it had been since I'd stood on the beach at Montauk, on the opposite side of the country, looking out at a different sea. How could there be a god who can control all that? What did my science teacher used to say? Two-thirds of the Earth's surface was covered in water. How could I be the son of, son of someone that powerful? I stepped into the surf. Percy, Annabeth said, what are you doing? I kept walking up to my waist, then to my, then my chest. She called after me. You know how polluted that water is? There are all kinds of toxic... That's when my head went under. I held my breath at first. It's difficult to intentionally inhale water. Finally, I couldn't stand it anymore. I gasped. Sure enough, I could breathe normally. I walked down into the shoals. I shouldn't have been able to see through the murk, but somehow I could tell where everything was. I could sense the rolling texture of the bottom. I could make out sand dollar colonies dotting the sandbars. I could even see the currents, warm and cold streams swirling together. I felt something rub against my leg. I looked down and almost shot, shot out of the water like a ballistic missile. Sliding along me was a five foot long mako shark. But the thing wasn't attacking. It was nuzzling me, healing like a dog. Tentatively, I touched its dorsal fin. It bucked a little, as if inviting me to hold it hold tighter. I grabbed the fin with both hands. It took off, pulling me along. The shark carried me down into the darkness. It deposited me at the edge of the ocean proper, where the sand bank dropped off into a huge chasm. 
It was like standing on the riff of the Grand Canyon at midnight, not being able to see much, but knowing the void was right there. The surface shimmered maybe a hundred and a feet above. I knew I should have been crushed by the pressure. Then again, I shouldn't have been able to breathe. I wonder if there's a limit to how deep I could go, if I could sink straight to the bottom of the Pacific. Then I saw something glimmering in the darkness below, growing bigger and brighter as it rose toward me. A woman's voice, like my mother's, called. Percy Jackson. As she got closer, her shape became clearer. She had flowing black hair, a dress made of green silk, light flickered around her, and her eyes were so distractingly beautiful, I hardly noticed the stallion-sized seahorse she was riding. She dismounted. The seahorse and the mako shark whisked off and started playing something that looked like tag. The underwater lady smiled at me. You come far, Percy Jackson. Well done. I wasn't quite sure what to do, so I bowed. You're the woman who sm spoke to me in the Mississippi River. Yes, child. I am Nereid, a spirit of the sea. It was not easy f to appear so far upriver, but the Naiads, my freshwater cousins, helped sustain my life force. They honor Lord Poseidon, though they do not serve in his court. And you serve in Poseidon's court? She nodded. It has been many years since a child of the sea god has been born. We have watched you with great interest. Suddenly, I remembered faces in the waves off Montauk Beach when I was a little boy. Reflections of smiling woman, like so many of the weird things in my life. I'd never given him much thought before. If my father is so interested in me, I said, why isn't he here? Why doesn't he speak to me? A cold current rushed out of the depths. Do not judge the Lord of the Sea too harshly, the Nereid told me. He stands at the brink of an unwanted war. He has much to occupy his time. Besides, he is forbidden to help you directly. The gods may not show, show such favoritism. Even to their own children? Especially to them. The gods can work by indirect influence only. That is why I give you a warning and a gift. She held out her hand. Three white pearls flashed in her palm. I know you journeyed to Hades' realm, she said. Few mortals have ever done this and survived. Orpheus, who had great music skill. Hercules, who had great strength. Houdini, who could, even, who could escape even the depths of Tartarus. Do you have these talents? Um, no, ma'am. Ah, but you have something else, Percy. You have gifts you have only begun to know. The oracles have foretold a great and terrible future for you. Should you survive to manhood, Poseidon would not have you die before your time. Therefore, take these, and when you are in need, smash a pearl at your feet. What will happen? That, she said, depends on the need. But remember, what belongs to the sea will always return to the sea. What about the warning? Her eyes flickered with green light. Go with what your heart tells you, or you will lose all. Hades feeds on doubt and hopelessness. He will trick you if, you if he can, make you mistrust your own judgment. Once you are in his realm, he will never willingly let you leave. Keep faith. Good luck, Percy Jackson. She summoned her seahorse and rode toward the void. Wait, I called. At the river. You said not to trust the gifts. What gifts? Goodbye, young hero, she called back. 
her voice fading into the depths. You must listen to your heart. She became a speck of glowing green, and then she was gone. I wanted to follow her down into the darkness. I wanted to see the court of Poseidon, but I looked up at the sunset darkening on the surface. My friends were waiting. We had so little time. I kicked upward toward the shore. When I reached the beach, my clothes dried instantly. I told Grover and Annabeth what had happened and showed them the pearls. Annabeth grimaced. No gift comes without a price. They were free. No, she shook her head. There is no such thing as a free lunch. That's an ancient Greek saying that translated pretty well into American. There will be a price. You wait. On that happy thought, we turned our backs on the sea. With some spare change from Aries' backpack, we took the bus into West Hollywood. I showed the driver the underworld address slip I'd taken from Auntie M's Garden Gnome Emporium, but he never heard of DOA Recording Studios. You remind me of somebody I saw on TV, he told me. You a child actor or something? Uh, I'm a stunt double for a lot of child actors. Oh, that explains it. We thanked him and got off quickly at the next stop. We wandered for miles on foot, looking for DOA. Nobody seemed to know where it was. It didn't appear in the phone book. Twice, we we ducked into alleys to avoid cop cars. I froze in front of an appliance store window because a television was playing an interview with somebody who looked very familiar. My stepdad, Smelly Gabe. He was talking to Barbara Walters. I mean, as if he was some kind of huge celebrity. She was interviewing him in our apartment, in the middle of a poker game, and there was a young blonde lady sitting next to him, patting his hand. A fake tear glistened on his cheek. He was saying, Honest, Miss Walters, if it, weren't, if it wasn't for sugar here, my grief counselor, I'd be a wreck. My stepson took everything I cared about. My wife, my camera. I- I'm sorry, I have trouble talking about it. There you have it, America. Robert Walters turned to the camera. A man torn apart. An adolescent boy with serious issues. Let me show you again the last known photo of this troubled young fugitive, taken a week ago in Denver. The screen cut to a grainy shot of me, Annabeth and Grover standing outside the Colorado diner talking to Aries. Who are the other children in this photo? Barbara Walters asked dramatically. Who is the man with them? Is Percy Jackson a delinquent? A terrorist? Or perhaps the brainwashed victim of a frightening new cult? When we come back, we chat with a leading child psychologist. Stay tuned, America. Come on, Grover told me. He hauled me away before I could punch a hole in the appliance store window. It got dark, and hungry-looking characters started coming out on the streets to play. Now don't get me wrong, I'm a New Yorker. I don't scare easy, but LA had a totally different feel from New York. Back home, everything seemed close. It didn't matter how big the city was. You could get anywhere without getting lost. The street pattern in Subway made sense. There was a system to how things worked. A kid could be safe as long as he wasn't stupid. LA wasn't like that. It was spread out, chaotic, hard to move around. It reminded me of Aries. It wasn't enough for LA to be big. It had to prove it was big by being loud and strange and difficult to navigate too. I didn't know how we were ever going to define the entrance to the underworld by tomorrow, the summer solstice. We walked past gangbangers, bums, and street hawkers who looked at us like they were trying to figure if we were worth the trouble of mugging. 
As we hurried past the entrance of an alley, a, do- a voice from the darkness had said, Hey, you. Like an idiot, I stopped. Before I knew it, we were surrounded. A gang of kids had circled us, six of them in all, white kids with expensive clothes and mean faces, like the kids at Yancey Academy. Rich brats played at being bad boys. Instantly, I uncapped Riptide. When the sword appeared out of nowhere, the kids backed off, but their leader was either really stupid or really brave, because he kept coming at me with a switchblade. I made the mistake of swinging. The kid yelped, because, but he must have been 100% mortal, because the blade passed harmlessly right through his chest. He looked down. What the? I figured out about three seconds before shock turned to anger. RUN! I screamed at Annabeth and Grover. We pushed two kids out of the way and raced down the street. Not knowing where we are going, we turned a sharp corner. There! Annabeth shouted. Only one store on the block looked open, its windows glaring with neon. The sign above the door said something like, Krusty's Waterbed Place? Palace? Grover translated. It didn't sound like a place I'd ever go except in an emergency, but this definitely qualified. We burst through the doors, ran behind a waterbed, and ducked. A split second later, the gang kids ran past outside. I think we lost them, Grover panted. A voice behind us boomed. Lost who? We all jumped. Standing behind us was a guy who looked like a raptor in a leisure suit. He was at least seven feet tall with absolutely no hair. He had gray, leathery skin, thick-lidded eyes, and a cold, reptilian smile. He moved toward us slowly, but I got the feeling he could move fast if he needed to. His suit might have come from the Lotus Casino. It belonged back in the 70s, big time. The shirt was silk paisley, unbuttoned halfway down his hairless chest. The lapels on his velvet jacket were as wide as landing strips. The silver chains around his neck, I couldn't even count them. I'm crusty, he said, with a tartar yellow smile. I resisted the urge to say, yes, you are. Sorry to barge in, I told him. We were just, um, browsing. You mean hiding from those no-good kids? He grumbled. They hang around every night. I get a lot of people in here, thanks to them. Say, you want to look at a waterbed? I was about to say no thanks when he put a huge paw on my shoulder and steered me deeper into the showroom. There was every kind of waterbed you could imagine. Different kinds of wood, different patterns of sheets, queen size, king size, emperor of the universe size. This is my most popular model. Krusty spread his hands proudly over a bed covered with black satin sheets. With built-in lava lamps on the headboard, the mattress vibrated so it looked like oil-flavored jello. Million hand massage, Krusty told us. Go on, try it out. Shoot, take a nap. I don't care. No business today anyway. Um, I said, I don't think... Million hand massage? Grover cried and dove in. Oh, you guys, this is cool. Hmm, Krusty said, stroking his leathery chin. Almost, almost. Almost what? I asked. He looked at Annabeth. Do me a favor and try this one over here, honey. Might fit. Annabeth said, but what? He patted her reassuringly on the shoulder and led her over to the Safari Deluxe model with teakwood lions carved into the frame and a leopard pattern comforter. When Annabeth didn't want to lie down, Krusty pushed her. Hey, she protested. Krusty snapped his fingers. Ergo! 
Rope sprang from the sides of the bed, lashing around Annabeth, holding her to the mattress. Grover tried to get up, but Rope sprang from his black satin bed, too, and lashed him down. Not cool, he yelled, his voice vibrating from the million hand massage. Not cool at all. The giant looked at Annabeth, then turned toward me and grinned. Almost darn it. I tried to step away, but his hand shot out and clamped around the back of my neck. Whoa, kid. Don't worry. We'll find you one in a sec. Let my friends go. Oh, sure. But I gotta make them fit first. What do you mean? All the beds are exactly six feet, see? Your friends are too short. Gotta make them fit. Annabeth and Grover kept struggling. Can't stand in perfect measurements, Krusty muttered. Ergo. A new set of ropes leaped out from the top and bottom of the beds, wrapping around Grover and Annabeth's ankles, then around their armpits. The ropes started tightening, pulling my friends from both ends. Don't worry, Krusty told me. These are stretching jobs. Maybe three extra inches on their spines. They might even live. Now why don't we find a bed like you like, huh? Percy! Grover yelled. My mind was racing. I knew I couldn't take on this giant waterbed salesman alone. He would snap my, snap my neck before I even got, ever got my sword out. Your real, your real name's not Krusty, is it? I asked. Legally, it's Procrustus, he admitted. The stretcher, I said. I remembered the story. The giant who tried to kill Theseus with excess hospitality on his way to Athens. Yeah, the salesman said. But who can pronounce Procrustus? Bad for business. Not crusty. Anybody can say that. You're right. It's got a good ring to it. His eyes lit up. You think so? Oh, absolutely, I said. And the workmanship on these beds? Fabulous. He grinned hugely, but his fingers didn't loosen on my neck. I tell my customers that. Every time. Nobody bothers to look at the workmanship. How many built-in lava lamps, ha- lava lamp headboards have you seen? Not too many. That's right. Percy, Annabeth yelled. What are you doing? Don't mind her, I told Procrustus. She's impossible. The giant laughed. All my customers are. Never six feet exactly. So inconsiderate. And then they and then they complain about the fitting. What do you do if they're longer than six feet? Oh, that happens all the time. It's a simple fix. He let go of my neck. But before I could react, he reached behind a nearby sales desk and brought out a huge double-bladed brass axe. He said, I send to the subject as best as I can and lop off whatever hangs off over on either end. Ah, I said, swallowing hard. Sensible. I'm so glad to come across an intelligent customer. The ropes were really stretching my friends now. Annabeth was turning pale. Grover made gurgling sounds like a strangled goose. So crusty, I said, trying to keep my voice light. I glanced at the sales tag on the Valentine-shaped honeymoon special. Does this one really have dynamic stabilizers to stop wave motion? Absolutely, try it out. Yeah, maybe I will. But would it work even for a big big guy like you? No waves at all. Guaranteed. No way. Way. Show me. He sat down eagerly on the bed, patted the mattress. No waves, see? I snapped my fingers. Ergo. Ropes lashed around Krusty and flattened him against the mattress. Hey! He yelled. Center him just right, I said. 
The ropes readjusted themselves at my command. Krusty's whole head stuck out at the top. His head, his feet stuck out at the bottom. No, he said. Wait, this is just a demo. I uncapped Riptide. A few simple adjustments. I had no qualms about what I was about to do. If Krusty were human, I couldn't hurt him anyway. If he was a monster, he deserved to turn into dust for a while. You drive, you drive a hard bargain, he told me. I'll give you 30% off on selected floor models. I think I'll start with the top. I raised my sword. No money down, no interest for six months. I swung the sword. Krusty stopped make, making offers. I cut the ropes on the other beds. Annabeth and Grover got to their feet, groaning and wincing and cursing me a lot. You look taller, I said. Very funny, Annabeth said. Be faster next time. I looked at the bulletin board behind Krusty's sales desk. There was an advertisement for Hermes Delivery Service and another for all new com compendium for of LA area monsters. The only monstrous yellow pages you'll ever need. Under that, a bright orange flyer for DOA recording studios offering commissions for hero souls. We are always looking for new talent. DOA's address was always underneath my underneath with a map. Come on, I told my friends. Give us a minute, Grover complained. We were almost stretched to death. Then you're ready for the underworld, I said. It's only a block from here. And that is the end of chapter... 17 that was a really interesting chapter considering how annabeth and grover got stretched while they were shopping for waterbeds it was a that's a very interesting store to visit but i don't think anyone would really want to get their you know feet and leg and hands or head stretched so yeah but that was really interesting how like you know percy tricked crusty into like you know falling for his own trap and how crusty like you know fell for it and you know he was like oh no wait wait so that was pretty cool and uh after these ads we will read chapter 18 annabeth does obedience school welcome back from the ads and now we read chapter 18 annabeth does obedience school we stood in the shadows of Valencia Boulevard, looking at, up at gold letters etched in black marble. DOA, DOA Recording Studios. Underneath, stenciled on the glass doors, no solicitors, no loitering, no living. It was almost midnight, but the lobby was brightly lit and full of people. Behind the security desk sat a tough-looking guard with sunglasses and an earpiece. I turned to my friends. Okay, you remember the plan. The plan? Grover gulped. Yeah, I love the plan. Annabeth said, What happens if the plan doesn't work? Don't think negative. Right, she said. We're entering the land of the dead, and I shouldn't think negative. I took the pearls out of my pocket. The three milky spheres the narrator had given me in Santa Monica. They didn't seem like much of a backup in case something went wrong. Annabeth put her hand on my shoulder. I'm sorry, Percy. You're right. We'll make it. It'll be fine. She gave Grover a nudge. All right, he chimed in. We got this far. We'll find the Master Bowl and save your mom. No problem. I looked at them both and felt really grateful. Only a few minutes before, I'd almost, I'd almost gotten them stretched to death on deluxe waterbeds. And now they're trying to be brave for my sake, trying to make me feel better. I slipped the pearls back in my pocket. Let's whoop some underworld butt. 
We walked inside the DOA lobby. Muzak played softly on hidden speakers. The carpet and walls were steel gray. Pencil cactuses grew in the corners like skeleton hands. The furniture was black leather, and every seat was taken. There were people sitting on couches, people standing up, people staring out out the windows, or waiting for the elevator. Nobody moved, nobody or talked, or did much of anything. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see them all just fine. But if I focused on any one of them in particular, they started looking, transparent. I could see right through their bodies. The security guard's desk was a raised podium, so we had to look up at him. He was tall and elegant, with chocolate-colored skin and bleached blonde hair with shaved military style. He wore tortoiseshell shades and a silk Italian suit that matched his hair. A black rose was pinned to his lapel under a silver name tag. I read the name tag and then looked at him in bewilderment. Your name is Sharon? He leaned across the desk. I couldn't see anything in his glasses except my own reflection, but his smile was sweet and cold, like a python's, right before it eats you. What a precious young lad. He had a strange accent. British, maybe? But also as if he'd learned English as a second language? Tell me, Mike, do I look like a centaur? No. Sir, he added smoothly. Sir, I said. He pinched the name tag and ran his finger under the letters. Can you read this, Mike? It says, Charon. Say it with me. Charon. Charon. Amazing. Now, Mr. Charon. Mr. Charon, I said. Well done, he sat back. I hate being confused with that old horseman. And now, how am I help you, little dead ones? His question caught in my stomach like a fastball. I looked at Annabeth for support. We want to go to the underworld, she said. Charon's mouth twitched. Well, that's refreshing. It is? she asked. Straightforward and honest. No screaming? No, there must be a mistake, Mr. Charon. He looked us us over. How did you die then? I nudged Grover. Oh, he said. Um, drowned in the bathtub? All three of you? Karen asked. We nodded. Big bathtub. Karen looked mildly impressed. I don't suppose you have coins for passage. Normally, with adults, you see, I could charge your American Express or add the ferry price to your last cable bill. But with children, alas, you never die prepared. Suppose you'll have to take a seat for for a few centuries. Oh, but we have coins. I set three golden drachmas on the counter, part of the stash I found in Krusty's office desk. Well now, Karen moistened his lips. Real drachmas? Real golden drachmas? I haven't seen these in... His fingers hovered greedily over the coins. We were so close. Then Karen looked at me. That cold stare behind his glasses seemed to bore a hole through my chest. Here now, he said. You can read my name correctly. Are you dyslexic, lad? No, I said. I'm dead. Karen leaned forward and took a sniff. You're not dead. I should have known. You're a godling. We have to get to the underworld, I insisted. Karen made a growling sound deep in his throat. Immediately, all the people in the waiting room got up and started pacing, agitated, lighting cigarettes, running hands through their hair, or checking their wristwatches. Leave while you can, Karen told us. I'll just take these and forget I saw you. 
I, he started to go for the coins, but I snatched them back. No service, no tip. I tried to sound braver than I felt. Karen growled again, growled again, a deep blood chilling sound. The spirits of the dead started pounding on the elevator doors. It's a shame too, I sighed. We had more to offer. I held up the entire bag from Krusty's stash. I took out a fistful of drachmas and let the coins spill through my fingers. Karen's growl changed into something more like a lion's purr. Do you think I can be bought, godling? Eh? Just out of curiosity, how much have you got there? A lot, I said. I bet Hades doesn't pay you well enough for such hard work. Oh, you don't know the half of it. How would you like to babysit these spirits all day? Always, please don't let me be dead, or please let me across for free. I haven't had a pay raise in 3,000 years. Do you imagine suits like this come cheap? You deserve better, I agreed. A little appreciation, respect, good pay. With each word, I stacked another gold coin on the counter. Karen glanced down at his silk Italian jacket as if imagining himself in something even better. I must say, lad, you're making some sense now. Just a little. I stacked another few coins. I could mention a pay raise while I'm talking to Hades. He sighed. The boat's almost full anyway. I might as well add you three and be off. He stood, scooped up our money and said, come along. We pushed through the crowd of waiting spirits who started grabbing at our clothes like the wind. Their voices whispering things I couldn't make out. Karen shoved them out of the way, grumbling, freeloaders. He escorted us into the elevator, which was already crowded with with souls of the dead, each one holding a green boarding pass. Karen grabbed two spirits who were trying to get on with us and pushed them back into the lobby. Right, now no one get any ideas while I'm gone, he announced to the waiting room. And if anybody moves the dial moves the dial off my easy listening station again, I'll make sure you're here for another thousand years. Understand? He shut the doors. He put a key card in a slot into a slot in the elevator panel and we start to descend. What happens to the spirits waiting in the lobby? Annabeth asked. Nothing, Karen said. For how long? Forever. Or until I'm feeling generous. Oh, she said, that's fair. Karen raised an eyebrow. Whoever said death was fair, young miss. Wait until it's your turn. You'll die soon enough. Where you're going? We'll get out alive, I said. Ha! I got a sudden sudden dizzy feeling. We weren't going down anymore, but forward. The air turned misty. Spirits around me started changing shape. Their modern clothes flickered, turning into gray hooded robes. The floor of the elevator began swaying. I blinked hard. When I opened my eyes, Karen's creamy Italian suit had been replaced by a long black robe. His tortoiseshell glasses were gone, where his eyes should have been were empty sockets, like Ares' eyes, except Karen's was do- were totally dark, full of night and death and despair. He saw me looking and said, Well? Nothing, I managed. No, I thought he was grinning, but that wasn't it. The flesh of his face was becoming transparent, letting me see th- straight through his skull. The floor kept swaying. Grover said, I think I'm getting seasick. When I blinked again, the elevator wasn't an elevator anymore. We were standing in a wooden barge. Karen was pulling us across the dark, oily river, swirling with bones, dead fish, and other stranger things. Plastic dolls, crushed carnations, soggy diplomas with gilt edges. The river sticks, 
Annabeth murmured. It's so polluted, Karen said. For thousands of years, you humans have been throwing in everything you as you come across. Hopes, dreams, wishes that never came true. Irresponsible waste management, if you ask me. Mist curled off the filthy water. Above us, almost lost in the gloom, was a ceiling of stalactites. Ahead, the far shore glimmered with greenish light, the color of poison. Panic closed up my throat. What was I doing here? These people around me? They were dead. Annabeth grabbed hold of my hand. Under normal circumstances, this was this would have embarrassed me, but I understood how she felt. She wanted reassurance that somebody else was alive on this boat. I found myself muttering a prayer, though I wasn't quite sure who I was praying to. Down here, only one god mattered, and he was the one I had come to confront. The shoreline of the underworld came into view. Craggy rocks and black volcanic sand stretched inland about a hundred yards to the base of a high stone wall, which marched off in either direction as far as we could see. A sound came from somewhere nearby in the green gloom, echoing off the stones, the howl of a large animal. Old Three-Face is hungry, Karen said. His smile turned skeletal in the greenish light. Bad luck for you, godlings. The bottom of our boat slid onto the black sand. The dead began to disembark. A woman holding a little girl's hand, an old woman and an old man, an old man and an old woman hobbling along arm in arm. A boy no older than I was shuffling silently along in his gray robe. Karen said, I wish you luck, mate, but there isn't any down here. Mind you, don't forget to mention my pay raise. He counted our golden coins into his pouch, then took up his pole. He warbled something that sounded like a Barry Manilow song as he ferried the empty barge back across the river. We followed the spirits up a well-worn path. I'm not sure what I was expecting, pearly gates or a big black portcullis or something, but the entrance to the underworld looked like a cross between airport security and the Jersey Turnpike. There are three separate entrances under one huge black archway that said you are now entering Erebus. Each entrance had a pass-through metal detector with security cameras mounted on top. Beyond this, this was, beyond this were toll boots manned by black-robed ghouls like Karen. The howling of the hungry animals really loud now, but I couldn't see where it was coming from. The three-headed dog, Cerberus, who was supposed to guard Hades' door, was nowhere to be seen. The dead queued up in the three lines, two marked attendant on duty and one marked easy death. The easy death line was moving right along, the other two were crawling. What do you figure? I asked Annabeth. The fast line must go straight to the asphodel fields, she said. No contest. They don't want to risk judgment from the court, because it might go against them. There's a court for dead people? Yeah, three judges. They search around who sits on the bench. King Minos, Thomas Jefferson, Shakespeare, people like that. Sometimes they look at a life and decide that person needs a special reward. The, feed, the fields of Elysium, sometimes they decide on punishment, but most people, well, they just lived. Nothing special, good or bad, so they go to the asphodel fields. And do what? Grover said, imagine standing in a wheat field in Kansas forever. Harsh, I said. Not as harsh as that, Grover muttered. Look. A couple of black-robed ghouls had pulled aside one spirit and were frisking him at the security desk. The face of the dead man looked vaguely familiar. He's that preacher who made the news, remember? Grover asked. Oh yeah, I do remember now. 
We'd seen him on TV a couple of times at the Yancey Academy dorm. He was an annoying televangelist from upstate New York who'd raised millions of dollars for orphanages and then got, got caught spending the money on stuff for his mansion, like gold-plated toilet seats and indoor and indoor putt-putt golf course. He died in a police chase when his Lamborghini for the Lord went off a cliff. I said, what are they doing to him? Special punishment from Hades, Grover guessed. The really bad people get his personal attention as soon as they re- re- arrive. The, fir- the kindly ones will set up an internal torture for him. The thought of the Furies made me shudder. I realized I was in their home territory now. Old Mrs. Dodds would be licking her lips with anticipation. But if he's a preacher, I said, and he believes in a different hell. Grover shrugged. Who says he's seeing this place the way we're seeing it? Humans see what they want to see. You're very stubborn or persistent that way. We got closer to the gates. The howling was so loud, now it shook the ground at my feet. But I still couldn't figure out where it was coming from. Then, about 50 feet in front of us, the green mist shimmered. Standing just where the path split into three lanes was an enormous shadowy monster. I hadn't seen it before because it was half transparent, like the dead. Until it moved, it blended with whatever was behind it. Only its eyes and teeth looked solid, and it was staring at me. My jaw hung open. All I could think to all I could think to say was, "He's a Rottweiler." I'd always imagined Cerberus as a black, big black m- mastiff, but he was obviously a purebred Rottweiler, except of course that he was twice the size of a woolly mammoth, mostly invisible, and had three heads. The dead walked right up to him, no fear at all. The attendant on duty lines parted on either side of him. The easy dead spirits walked right under between his front paws and under his belly, which they could do without even crouching. I'm trying to see him better, I muttered. Why is that? I think Annabeth moistened her lips. I'm afraid it's because we're getting closer to being dead. The dog's middle head craned toward us. It sniffed the air and growled. It can smell the living, I said. But that's okay, Grover said, trembling next to me, because we have a plan. Right, Annabeth said. I never heard her voice sound quite so small. A plan. We moved toward the monster. The middle head snarled at us, then barked so loud, my eyeballs rattled. Can you understand it? I asked Grover. Oh, yeah, he said. I can understand it. What's it saying? I don't think humans have a four-letter word that translates exactly. I took the big stick out of my backpack, a bedpost I'd broken off Krusty Safari Deluxe floor model. I held it up and tried to channel happy dog thoughts towards Cerberus. Alpo commercials, cute little puppies, fire hydrants. I tried to smile like I wasn't about to die. Hey, big fella, I called up. I bet they don't play with you much. Growl. Good boy, I said weakly. I waved the stick. The dog's middle head followed the movement. The other two heads trained their eyes on me, completely ignoring the spirits. I had Cerberus's undivided attention. I wasn't sure that was a good thing. Fetch! I threw the stick into the gloom, a good solid throw. I heard it go kerploosh in the river sticks. Cerberus glared at me, unimpressed. His eyes were baleful and cold. So much for the plan. Cerberus was now making a new kind of growl, deeper down in his three throats. Um, Grover said, Percy? Yeah? I just thought you wanted to know. Yeah? Cerberus? 
He's saying we've got 10 seconds to pray to the god of our choice. After all, after that, well, he's hungry. Wait, Annabeth said. She started rifling through her pack. Uh-oh, I thought. Five seconds, Grover said. Do we run now? Annabeth produced a red rubble ball the size of a grapefruit. It was labeled Waterland, Denver, Colorado. Before I could stop her, she raised the ball and marched straight up to Cerberus. She shouted, See the ball? You want the ball, Cerberus? Sit! Cerberus looked as stunned as we were. All three of his heads cocked sideways, six nose nostrils dilated. Sit! Annabeth called again. I was sure that any moment that she would become the largest milk bone dog biscuit. But instead, Cerberus licked his three sets of lips and sh- shifted on his haunches and sat, immediately crushing out a dozen spirits who had been passing under underneath him in the easy death line. The spirits made muffled hisses as they dissipated, like the air let out of tires. Annabeth said, good boy. She threw Cerberus the ball. He caught it in, he, he caught it in, the, uh, he caught it in his middle mouth. It was barely in, big enough for him to chew. The other and the other head started snapping at the middle, trying to get the new toy. Drop it, Annabeth ordered. Server's head stopped fighting and looked at her. The ball was wedged between two of his teeth like a tiny piece of gum. He made a loud, scary whimper, then dropped the ball, now slimy and bit and bit ten nearly in half, at Annabeth's feet. Good boy, she picked up the ball, ignoring the monstrous spit all over it. She turned toward us. Go now, easy deadline. It's faster, I said. But... Now, she ordered in the same tone she was using on the dog. Grover and I inched forward warily. Cerberus started to growl. Stay, Annabeth ordered ordered the monster. If you want the ball, stay. Cerberus whimpered, but he stayed where he was. What about you? I asked Annabeth as we passed her. I know what I'm doing, Percy, she muttered. At least I'm pretty sure. Grover and I walked between the monster's legs. Please, Annabeth, I prayed. Don't tell him to sit again. We made it through. Cerberus wasn't any less scary looking from the back. Annabeth said, good dog. She held up to the tattered red ball and probably came to the same conclusion I did. If she rewarded Cerberus, there'd be nothing left for another trick. She threw the ball anyway. The monster's left mouth immediately snatched it up, only to be attacked by the middle head, while the right head moaned in protest. While the monster was distracted, Annabeth walked briskly under its belly and joined us at the metal detector. How did you do that? I asked her, amazed. Obedience school, she said breathlessly, and I was surprised to see there were tears in her eyes. When I was little, at my dog's, at my dad's house, we had a Doberman. Never mind that, Grover said, tugging at my shirt. Come on! We were about to bolt through the easy deadline when Cerberus moaned pitifully from all three mounts. Annabeth stopped. She turned to face the dog, which had done a 180 to look at us. Cerberus panted expectantly, the tiny red ball in pieces in a puddle of drool at his feet. Good boy, Annabeth said, but her voice sounded melancholy and uncertain. The monster's head turned sideways, as if if worried about her. I'll bring you another ball soon, Annabeth promised faintly. Would you like that? The monster whimpered. I didn't need to speak dog to know Cerberus was still waiting for the ball. Good dog, I'll come visit you soon. I I promise. Annabeth turned to us. Let's go. Grover and I pushed through the metal detector, which immediately screamed and set off flashing red lights. Unauthorized possessions. Magic detected. 
servers start to bark. We burst through the easy death gate, which started even more alarms blaring and raced into the underworld. A few minutes later, we are hiding out of breath in the rotten trunk of an immense black tree as security goals scuttled past, yelling for backup from the Furies. Grover murmured, Well, Percy, what have we learned today? That three-headed dogs prefer red rubber, ball, rubber balls over sticks? No, Grover told me. We've learned that your plans really, really bite. I wasn't sure about that. I thought maybe Annabeth and I both had the right idea. Even here in the underworld. Everybody, even monsters, need a little attention in once in a while. I thought about that as we waited for the ghouls to pass. I pretended not to see Annabeth wipe a tear from her cheek as she listened to the mournful keening of Cerberus in the distance, longing for his new friend. And that is the end of chapter 18. That was really interesting, learning how Annabeth, you know, we kind of learned more information about her, like how she owned a dog and how she was able to make that three-headed dog stay and sit with just a rubber ball. Yeah, I think Annabeth really helped Percy out, Percy and Grover out in this chapter. And stay tuned for next week where I read chapters 19 through 20. And yeah, stay safe and stay out of boredom.